and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, August 13th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. We'll start with the cover story. Iowa Stops Hunger, Changing the Food Insecurity Conversation. Food bank and pantry leaders say problems that lead to food insecurity need to be addressed by Michael Crum. As food insecurity soared in 2020 with the spread of the coronavirus pandemic and the economic pain it inflicted through business closures and layoffs, the spotlight was cast on helping those who may not have enough to feed their families. Food pantries quickly adapted to find new ways to get food in the hands of those who needed it most. While the numbers of those considered food insecure have declined in recent months compared with the height of the pandemic, with COVID-19 vaccines and the economy beginning to rebound, some people in the food bank and food pantry system say they are closely watching for signs that demand could increase again as the Delta variant of the virus tightens its grip on the country. The ending of assistance programs put in place to help those in need is also of concern. As those in the food bank and food pantry system remain diligent and prepare for what could lie ahead, they say the time has come to have serious conversations about why food insecurity is such a problem in our communities and to begin taking action to solve those issues. Business Publications Corp. and its publications including the Business Record, DSM Magazine, and IA Magazine, are kicking off their second year of the Iowa Stops Hunger campaign to bring attention to the plight of those who are food insecure and to shed light on those who have made it their mission to help. Last year, we learned what food insecurity is, who is affected, and who who the faces are on the front line of the fight to put food on the tables of people who need it most. We saw how a network of volunteers came together to find new, innovative ways to make sure no one went hungry as the COVID-19 pandemic spread across our state, closing businesses and forcing many people to seek help, help for the first time. This year, As businesses open up and events return to in-person gatherings, the fight against food insecurity is continuing. Over the next 12 months, we will continue to facilitate conversations about food insecurity. We will strive to tell the stories of those who, all too often, are forced to make tough decisions about feeding their family. And we hope we will inspire you to get involved to join us and seek answers that can lead to change. It's going to take more than just hunger-fighting organizations having those conversations to make that happen, said Unger, the leader of DMARC, an interfaith organization with a core membership of over 125 congregations from five faith traditions. DMARC manages a food pantry network consisting of 14 pantry sites, a mobile food pantry, and two food warehouses. A year ago, the number of people identified as food insecure jumped 51% to nearly 460,000 people in Iowa. According to Feeding America, a national nonprofit network of 200 food banks, including six in Iowa, 
That number has dropped to just over 407,000 in March, the most recent data available. Despite that decline, food insecurity is still 33% higher than it was before the pandemic. In 2019, the number of people in Iowa who were food insecure totaled about 305,000. Iowa food banks distributed more than 50 million meals last year, up from about 33 million in 2019. Applications for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, benefits jumped 168% in the early weeks of the pandemic. Even though some improvement in numbers has been seen, Linda Gorkow, Executive Director of the Iowa Food Bank Association, said those in the food bank and food pantry system can't take their foot off the gas. Gorkow said part of the message that must continue is that food insecurity did not begin with the pandemic, and it will continue long after the pandemic ends. We felt the dramatic increase at the beginning of the pandemic, but it continues on, and it's work we do daily, so we're always working to educate the community about hunger, she said. Having one food insecure child in Iowa is not acceptable. Zero would be the ideal number, so we continue to fight. As the stories came out last year of the awareness of people needing food at a time when they may never have used food pantries, I think that opened a lot of people's eyes, Gorkow said. What we have been doing for 30 years is awareness, but that continual conversation of it doesn't go away just because things are going back to normal. The conversation is continually about whether hunger is acceptable in our communities and in a state that provides and feeds the world. There's a lot of messages we need to continue and share when it's not in the headlines all the time, she said. Michelle Book, president and CEO of the Food Bank of Iowa, which serves a 55-county area, said that while food insecurity remains well above pre-pandemic levels, She's hopeful that heightened awareness that was created last year will help keep the conversation about food insecurity moving forward. We all know someone who lost their job or lost valuable hours or their career dreams during COVID, she said. All those baptism by fire moments, I don't think we forget them easily. I don't think we're going to forget this quickly. I believe we have a new compassion for people who are living on the edge because so many of us were there together over the course of the past year and a half, she said. Jacob Wanderscheid is the executive director of the Food Band of Siouxland, Food Bank of Siouxland, which works with 100 member agencies in 11 counties in western Iowa and eastern Nebraska. He said he is concerned some of the focus that was placed on food insecurity last year could fade now that things are returning to normal. Last year, if somebody was homesick or laid off because their business closed, that was easily explained. It's easier to tell that story, Wanderscheid said. Now it might get back to why does somebody still need assistance when the economy is improving? We have to keep talking about what food insecurity looks like. We need to sustain that message that it's here, he said. 
While food bank and pantry operators may have seen a bit of a reprieve earlier this year, they're closely watching several developments in the coming weeks and months as they prepare for the fall and the upcoming holiday season, which is traditionally their busiest time of the year. Besides the recent increases in COVID-19 cases brought on by the highly transmissible Delta variant, some government programs are set to expire that could again force more people back to the shelves of their local food pantries. One of those is federal unemployment benefits, which have been paid since March 2020. Those are set to expire September 6th and CNBC reports that there appears to be little chance of Congress extending them, creating an unemployment cliff for 7.5 million people. Another is the reduction in benefits paid to SNAP recipients. Unger, the CEO of DMARC, said benefits were allowed to be paid out at the maximum tier during the pandemic, and there are concerns that could end if a state proclamation of a pandemic isn't extended. There was also a 15% increase in benefits contained in CARES Act funding, and that is set to expire at the end of September. Unger said the combination of those two things is a scary proposition. The thing about something like that ending, now it's walking right into our busiest time of year, he said. We've seen it coming, so we've been able to prepare for it, but at the same time, we don't have a great measuring stick of what this new population of people in need is. We know there's still a lot of people who are unemployed or haven't gone back to work, but what is this new universe going to look like for us? Fortunately, if demand spikes again, food banks and pantries already know what to do, Unger said. The good thing is we just went through it, so we know everything we need to adapt and do if that happens, he said. Book said she also worries about a spike this fall. We're planning for a fall surge, she said. I'm disappointed in vaccination rates in the state of Iowa at 46.9% as of August 4th. We cover a significant part of rural Iowa where vaccination rates are low, and I'm fearful that when school starts in the fall, we're going to see COVID jump again. I think we could be in for some more rocky COVID waves to come. So we're preparing for that, and we're working with our school pantries to make sure they are prepared, she said. Gorkow said the changing challenges keep the system working to be better. It's continual learning, she said. The challenges that happened last year made us better, but a new one will always come our way, so we always sharpen our minds and tools to be better. Some aren't expecting the level of food insecurity to drop off to pre-pandemic levels until 2023. Others, like Book, say the data they see suggests that it might not happen until 2026 or 2027. Wanderscheid of the Food Bank of Siouxland said he fears people may have been lulled into a false sense of security when COVID cases declined and vaccination rates increased this spring, and he's preparing for a resurgence in demand for services later this year. With how the vaccine has slowed and the Delta variant has begun to go through people, it's kind of creeping back in, he said. 
as we get through this summer and people return to school, we might see things go backwards a little bit. It's something we are bracing for and trying to get ready for, he said. The people we spoke with said simply putting food on people's tables is no longer enough, and it's now time to focus the discussion on the causes of food insecurity and find solutions to those issues. We need to be able to talk about that, Book said. We need to talk about why there are open jobs and a higher unemployment rate and why that is happening. I think food bankers need to be prepared to address income inequity and unemployment and open jobs, she said. Part of the discussion needs to be on paying people a living wage, Book said. If we're not going to pay them a living wage, do we just need to pay them to live, Book said. Barriers to getting a job, such as transportation and child care, also need to be addressed, she said. We need to explore this whole system we've built. It's just broken, Book said. The whole foundation of the system is broken. Until people are no longer in poverty, we will have to continue to feed them. Unger said until those conversations are held, food insecurity will continue to be a challenge. It's going to take this groundswell of public support around why, in a society like this, do we have so many people that can't meet their food needs, and ask the questions about where are we with wages? What's the problem with housing, and why is it so expensive? Why can someone work two jobs and still have to spend 80% of their income on their housing, Unger said. There's a lot of questions that we've avoided that we have to address, and until we do, nothing is going to really change that much around food insecurity. He said it's important that the community rally around the fight against poverty, just as it did last year in the fight against food insecurity. We can't segregate these issues, Unger said. We need to get around the same table and harness that same storytelling power to start a war on poverty. There is a power in coming together as a sector and fighting these things from multiple approaches to both educate policymakers and those who have the power to change some of these things, he said. Through the data we have and the stories we've collected, we can create a better understanding of the root causes of these problems. Unger said that discussion needs to happen concurrently with the continued fight against food insecurity. It's easy to get micro-targeted on the piece of the puzzle that you're filling, he said, but we have to find a way in parallel to get to the root cause. It's kind of the next step, but it has to be the same step. We have to keep meeting those needs, but you have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. The next story, a feature story, a closer look. Meet a leader you should know. Kurt Sinnott, Vice President of Strategy and Business Development, by Clarity. By Kate Hayden. With two decades of experience in the healthcare systems industry, Kurt Sinnott is leading a new initiative at ViClarity to bring the company's governance, risk, and compliance software over to health systems clients. 
Before joining ViClarity, Sinnott was Vice President of Client Relations at the healthcare analytics platform SG2 and held a variety of leadership positions with the biopharmaceutical company Merck. It wasn't until he experienced living through the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic that he witnessed the greatest shift in healthcare systems in his career, he said. Virtual and telehealth were items that were kind of front burner for most organizations, but with COVID-19, you needed to do it instantly, Sinnott said. Question. What is your background prior to joining ViClarity? Sinnott's response. I've been in healthcare for 28 years now, and I have had a really broad experience base, from working directly with doctors to working with health systems to working with the state Medicaid and the federal government. I've had a broad exposure to healthcare. ViClarity is based in Ireland and was acquired by AMC about a year and a half ago. They've worked in the financial services credit unions space, and now we're expanding into healthcare. My job is to get us rolling into the healthcare space. I spent 20 years in the pharmaceutical industry, working with doctors and large hospital systems. I've spent some time with Medicaid and Medicare at the federal level and working across healthcare to create access to medications and provide resources for mostly chronic care patients. I spent six years with the healthcare analytics and intelligence firm that is based in Chicago and had clients in 19 states, and those clients range from simple hospitals to the largest health system in the United States. I also had academic medical systems, children's hospitals, orthopedic specialty hospitals. So all of that exposure really did create an environment, as we're bringing this ViClarity software to the U.S., to have an understanding of what really is most important to the hospitals and to the administrators that lead those hospitals. That's what we're doing with our resources at ViClarity, selling governance, risk and compliance vendor management of all sorts of different software packages that help automate very labor-intensive systems. Have you witnessed healthcare operations shift over time? If you think about what's happened in the last year and a half, it's not as though healthcare moved forward 10 years and expedited issues. Yes, that happened, but it also took an abrupt right-hand corner. Virtual and telehealth were items that were kind of front burner for most organizations, but with COVID-19, you needed to do it instantly. I had a client in my previous position that actually converted all 360 of their providers to be virtual providers in the span of 48 hours. All the doctors had to be certified. They had to be tested and trained, and they did this in two days. They went from zero virtual visits to 8,000 virtual visits in one week. Otherwise, they would be out of business. They were going to be closed. This was really a major, major change. That's the most dramatic shift in my lifetime in healthcare. It made people think differently. How do you strategize in healthcare services after such a shift like that? We went from standard business in healthcare of seeing patients people going into the hospital, having procedures done, 
and people in their primary care clinics being seen by their doctors for less acute situations, to today, there's been a major shift in the site of care. I can see my primary care doctor for my headache or my earache virtually. That's a lasting change as well, the site of care and virtual options. What's the best piece of advice or feedback you've received in your career? The first thing is to prepare and deliver every single day. A second thing is to keep your eyes open to not only your industry, but the things that are impacting business in general. COVID-19 is a great example of that. You think about how healthcare has changed, but so has the restaurant business. Instead of dining in, now you have carryout in places that have never, ever had carryout before. You think about local activities. You couldn't go to a movie, so people use Netflix. Business has been altered substantially. Keep your eyes open and pay attention to what's going on with the trends that exist in the business world. What goals do you have for this role in the next year? We are developing a couple of channels for hospital and healthcare systems, as well as the long-term care arena. Those two channels are going to help automate systems and processes today that are very labor-intensive, that require a lot of input points and manpower to do the work. It's one thing to have a process in a hospital, but it's another thing when you have 20, 30, or 50 hospitals that are all part of an organization. We're able to help the single hospital, but we're also able to help the big multi-facility organization with automation. What have you been reading, watching, or listening to recently? There's a lot of innovation right now, and that innovation is unique to every single business. I really do like to keep up with the trends. Those are the kind of books that I read, the podcasts that I listen to, the conversations I have with friends. I don't really get pigeonholed into a single source. I don't have a specific news feed that I live off. Kurt Sinnott at a glance. Hometown, Omaha. Family, wife, Molly, sons, Reed, 24, and Hayden, 21. Education, University of Kansas. Activities, golf, volunteering with Habitat for Humanity and local food pantries. Contact, email, K-U-R-T dot S-I-N-N-E-T-T at V-I-C-L-A-R-I-T-Y-U-S dot com. From the Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business. How Johnston's New City Hall Ties to the City's Past by Kathy A. Bolton. Before designs for Johnston's new City Hall were prepared, architects at OPN Architects researched the history of the community that is located northwest of Des Moines. They learned the area had deep ties to rail transportation, specifically the Interurban Electric Railway that was established in 1907. The commuter and freight service ran from Carlisle to Perry, according to the Johnston Historical Society. Several transfer stations were located along the line's route, 
including one in an area that is now part of the city of Johnston. Transfer stations, typically small buildings, provided power to the interurban line, according to the Historical Society. The station northwest of Des Moines became known as Johnston Station, named after its station master, John Johnston. Architects like to tie the architecture of a building to the history of the community, said David Wilwording, Johnston's community development director. We have a rail history since the interurban rail used to go just west of the new city hall, so this building has some uniqueness to its design, he said. Tall wood columns are uniquely grouped in pairs around the building's exterior overhangs. They are spaced at roughly 4 feet 8 inches apart, the width of a typical rail, rail line, Wilwording said. The vertical height of each rectangular-shaped piece of limestone in the building's facade is 19.5 inches, which is related to the typical rail railroad tie spacing. The 65-degree angle on the south edge of the community stage, the council day's layout, and other subtle details around the new building are a nod to the original orientation of the railroad as it cut through Johnston, according to Joe Feldman of OPN Architects. The tilt of overhang on the stage was used to project the sound into the green space and act as a symbolic gesture of the building opening up to the community, he said. Another feature of the building that relates to Johnston's history is the limestone that is used throughout the structure, Wilwording said. Portions of a historic fence that surrounds Camp Dodge, a military facility located at 7105 Northwest 70th Avenue in Johnston, are made with limestone. When city officials updated the community's comprehensive plan in 1998, Quote, the council thought we were lacking identity, Wilwording said. He said, now you see city monument signs all around the city that are made with limestone. It was a play off the limestone fence. That was an important historical tie between the new city hall and the other limestone used throughout Johnston, he said. Construction of the Johnston City Hall, located at 6221 Merle Hay Road, was completed earlier this year. Also from the Insider Notebook, What Should Companies Know When Working with a Startup Pilot? by Kate Hayden. Part of every high-growth startup's story is the mentors and organizations that helped founders put their products to the test. A short-term pilot program, in collaboration with an organization that fits the profile of the startup's ideal future clients. Taking on a pilot project with an early-stage startup is not without responsibility on the part of organizations, though. What should businesses know before they sign on? We spoke with two-time startup founder Alan Wilson Langman, who joined the Iowa Agritech Accelerator with his former company, Sigma O. In 2019, Wilson Langman had been trying to build as wide a network as possible to connect his early-stage startup to parties that would support further research. The hope was to extend that and grow. In large organizations, you might have the buy-in from some middle management or mid-level researchers, but you really need to have the buy-in from as high up as possible to support this type of innovation, Wilson Langman said.
Through the accelerator, Sigma O established multi-week partnerships with Corteva AgriScience and Power Pollen to study how the startup's radar sensor technology could be used to measure crop growth, analysis, and management for agricultural companies. We were working with researchers to solve some of the challenges that they had. One of them was measuring remote moisture of crops, Wilson Langman said. Early research is really critical to help you move it through the pipeline and bring a more commercial side of the business, he said. As a founder, Wilson Langman said that collaborating with larger companies brought credibility and practical resources, including space for field studies, to Sigma O. They had a deep understanding of the problem from an agricultural perspective that could demonstrate what we needed to show, Wilson Langman said. Early stage startups are challenging for established businesses, but businesses that get involved in pilot projects should be aware of what they can provide to those startups, he added. There needs to be a bit of altruism, Wilson Langman said. I think there is a responsibility of a company, if you want to get involved, to be able to assist, mentor a company, and help them grow. There needs to be people who are involved with the startups, to be empowered to create the value, he said. Ultimately, Sigma O shut down in 2020, Wilson Langman said. The biggest lesson we had is if we had the technology in a better state, On a platform where we could do more measurements, I think that would have been a lot better, he said. Our technology was more of a general platform. There were lots of opportunities, and still are. But I think if you want to get the best out of it, be past that stage and have a clear product solving a pain point for that organization. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, August 13th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Continuing with articles from the notebook. How can businesses support tech students graduating in Iowa? By Kate Hayden. We did some research with our college students and we realized that out of the kids we interviewed, about 20, only two four-year college seniors had potential job offers, said Pi515 founder and director Nancy Murazzi, presenting with five students at July 7th's One Million Cups event. We asked, did anyone talk to you? Employers have to realize that they're missing this talent. A girl in my circle applied to around 1,000 jobs in Des Moines, went to Iowa State University, did not get an IT job here. Tesla called her for a job. We didn't see that talent here, but Tesla did, she said. Next, a guest opinion column submitted by Rick Tolickson. Hallie Stillkaris, and Jake Christensen. Pro Soccer Stadium is a missing piece in downtown DM's puzzle. Picture this. You pick up a guest from the Des Moines International Airport. Maybe this person has never been to Greater Des Moines. 
Maybe you are trying to recruit them here for an employment opportunity or to establish a stronger business relationship or even consummate an investment opportunity. On the way to downtown, you tell them about the recent momentum of the region. Strong population growth, national recognition as a place poised for continued success following the pandemic, our ability to draw major national events, and promises to visit the must-see amenities follow. As you travel past the Wakanda Golf Club, home of the principal charity classic, you continue past Gray's Lake and the Crudenere Trail pedestrian bridge, past the 1,500-acre Waterworks Park and the new Lords and Amphitheater. You turn right onto Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway, and the impressive skyline comes into view. But then, like so many times before, the conversation turns to the abandoned, dilapidated Dyko Superfund site to the south. It's the front door to our downtown, and instead of a vibrant entrance, our front door is missing its welcome mat. That pop of color and sense of vibrancy that sets us apart from other Midwest cities. Bottom line, first impressions matter. Now picture the difference as you see the top of a professional soccer stadium come into view. The activity of downtown residents, employees, and visitors experiencing the vivacity of the neighborhood's restaurants, bars, coffee shops, and events. The proposed pro-Iowa soccer stadium and Global Plaza will give our downtown, our greater Des Moines region, and our state a welcoming front door, bringing the infectious vibrancy of a global sport and greeting everyone who chooses greater Des Moines as a destination to visit or live. American Equity Investment Life Insurance Company has pictured it, recently announcing a $5 million contribution to this vision as has the Iowa Economic Development Authority, which recently announced a $23.5 million award. The project's efforts will pave the way for a USL Championship League team to make a home in Greater Des Moines. The USL Championship League is the second highest level of professional soccer in the country, and our region will join 31 major metros across the country, including Nashville, Louisville, and Charlotte, in having a team in the league. This project provides a solution to not only clean up a Superfund site that has been an eyesore for decades, but to enhance our state as a more inclusive and welcoming state. It is the right project at the right time to finally transform this site. This project is also a major remaining piece of the puzzle to connect so many amenities in and around downtown. This space can be used to expand festival footprints beyond the Western Gateway, John and Mary Papa John Sculpture Park, and historic Court District Bridges. It will connect downtown regulars to recreational opportunities, including the Icon, Iowa Confluence Water Trails, formerly Central Iowa Water Trails, Access Point, planned along the Raccoon River. 500-plus miles of bike trails via the Meredith Trail across the Chris and Marcy Coleman Bridge to Waterworks Park and Gray's Lake Park. This project is more than just a USL Championship soccer stadium. It will add development to the Western Gateway to our downtown. 
It will provide yet another reason for people to live in downtown in neighborhoods such as Gray's Station, the neighboring 75-acre community that will have more than 1,000 residents when complete. Employees from surrounding businesses will be able to enjoy this amenity and benefit from the added development it brings. The pro-Iowa soccer stadium and global plaza and surrounding development will add to the draw of our region for prospective residents, students, investors, employers, and visitors. It will add a sense of place and pride and serve as a space to celebrate diversity and welcome people of all backgrounds. In order for our community, region, and state to be successful, we have to do more to attract people to our community. The pro-Iowa Soccer Stadium and Global Plaza are one of those significant impact projects. No one project will be the single solution, but this will elevate our community to a higher level and into a similar level that you see other championship league cities operating at across the nation. We must keep growing to offset the uphill battle we have for population growth and a larger, much-needed workforce. Our community... Our region and our state are ready to tackle the population and workforce challenges we now face. We do not back down from challenges, but create opportunities from them. This is one such opportunity. It has taken time, effort, collaboration, and serious investment, but this project is absolutely achievable, and now is the time to make it happen. We can do this. Rick Tolickson is president and CEO of Hubble Realty Company and past co-chair of the Greater Des Moines Partnership's Downtown Des Moines Board. Hallie Still-Karras is a shareholder with the Nymaster Good Law Firm and co-chair of the Greater Des Moines Partnership's Downtown Des Moines Board. Jake Christensen is president of Christensen Development and co-chair of the Greater Des Moines Partnership's Downtown Des Moines Board. Our next story... Connectify HR to offer services for small and medium-sized companies. Three former Orion HR executives spearheading new venture. By Joe Gardiaz. Three seasoned Greater Des Moines Human Resources professionals have teamed up to launch Connectify HR LLC, a new professional employer organization focused on serving small and medium-sized businesses. The company is led by Melissa Ness, who previously held several leadership positions with Orion HR, which was originally Merit Resources. She most recently was Chief Financial Officer of West Des Moines-based technology services provider Orion, which sold Orion HR three years ago to Oasis Outsourcing which was subsequently acquired by Paychex, Inc. During her 14 years with Orion HR, Ness held leadership roles as Chief Financial Officer, Chief Operating Officer, and President and CEO. Joining Ness in Connectify HR is Joel Duncan, who previously led Merit Resources and then Orion HR as President and CEO, along with Ned Flynn, who worked with both Ness and Duncan in building revenues for Orion HR. I was born and raised here in Iowa and just love everything about Iowa and the people here, Ness said. 
We know that when businesses and employees thrive, our community thrives. Simply put, we feel like we've already made an impact and a difference in this community, and we want to do that for years to come. Our goal is to build something that lasts, and we're pretty excited about that, she said. As a professional employer organization, Connectify's mission is to simplify the business of running a business by connecting numerous vendors, suppliers, and services through a single organization that can take the time to understand each client's business. That includes everything from onboarding to payroll, workers' compensation, benefits, employee relationships, she said. There's also a lot of compliance training and all the technology needed to support those functions and to streamline it for the employee experience. The pandemic has dramatically accelerated what had already been an increasingly complex atmosphere for small business owners, said Flynn, the company's revenue and strategy officer. Our solution helps provide employers with a mechanism to reconnect with their clients because they can focus on their clients versus the other things, reconnect with their employees, and help them manage their employees in this new way of doing business, he said. With the new venture, the trio is essentially hitting the refresh button on a synergistic relationship they built together while at Orion HR. Orion HR had doubled its sales between 2015 and the time it was acquired by Oasis in 2018, and it nearly doubled sales again in the subsequent two years as Oasis's most productive unit, Flynn said. As part of an increasingly larger company, I think both Ness and I would say we felt that even though our offices didn't change, we felt further removed from the client, he said. In particular, in what we do working with small businesses, we are more effective as a solutions provider when we're familiar with the business, Flynn said. We understand what their goals and objectives are. So a very significant different differentiation piece for us is our familiarity with our businesses and communities and the people that we're dealing with, he said. Duncan, whose role in the company will be as a senior advisor, said it was an easy decision to reconnect with friends who share the same commitment and care for Iowa, its small business owners, and serving its communities. Since leaving his position as president of RNHR three years ago, he has provided consulting for small businesses. It has become increasingly apparent to me that information and resources intended to assist small businesses are abundant, but connecting to the right resources and information is complex and time-consuming, he said. Additionally, navigating the rapidly accelerating changes in the way we work, employee expectations, client expectations, Risks, exposures, and costs of doing business is daunting for most small businesses and nonprofits, he said. Upon speaking to Ness about her vision for Connectify HR, it was one of those trifecta moments where awareness, experience, and passion intersect, Duncan said. Ness is the largest shareholder in the limited liability company, which has a handful of local investors in addition to Duncan and Flynn. I did explore traditional bootstrapping, if you will, Ness said, 
and decided that in order to give back and to create the environment that I wanted to create for employees and businesses that I would raise funds, so I did raise funds here locally. I actually had more interest than I had room on the cap table, which was unexpected but continues to validate the need that not only we all see but that others in the community see as well, she said. The company plans to round out its initial staff with seven additional hires this year and will operate on a hybrid basis from a leased office space at 1840 Northwest 118th Street, Suite 206 in Des Moines, beginning in mid-August. A launch event is planned for Thursday, August 26th. For details and to RSVP, email Melissa Ness at melissa.ness at connectifyhr.com by August 18th. Now turning to Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files. COVID's Big Boy Pants. Quote, Warren Buffett was a genius, end quote. Those words came from behind me and were muffled by a face mask. When I turned around, I saw the eyes and forehead of my old friend K.C., who had been standing at the corner of 42nd Street and Grand Avenue, adjusting his mask. What do you mean Warren Buffett was a genius, I said. The last time I checked, he was still alive. Of course he's alive, K.C. said. He'll outlive both of us. I meant the thing he said back in 2008 about the financial crisis. That was genius. Buffett said a lot of stuff, I replied. The thing he said about people swimming in the ocean, K.C. said. He said, you can't tell who is naked until the tide goes out. Boy, was that true, I said. When the financial tide went out, there were a lot of mortgage bankers and other so-called finance experts who were totally exposed. But why are you bringing that up now, I asked. Because the same thing is happening with the COVID pandemic, KC said. Only this time, instead of bankers and finance guys, it's politicians who are being exposed. Normally, the stupid stuff that politicians say has a life cycle of a few days or a couple of weeks at most. So much stupid stuff happens so fast today that a comment has to be really dumb for anyone to remember it a month later. For example, he said, of all the stupid things the legislature did this year, there are only two that people are going to remember long term. Let me guess, I said. One has to be the open carry gun law they passed. It allows just about anybody to open carry a gun just about anywhere. That's going to get a lot of people, including police officers, killed. It already has, KC said, so of course people are going to remember it. What's the other, I asked. It's what lawmakers are doing to Iowa's public education system. They've taken one of the best systems in the country and they are dumbing it down to the level of Mississippi. They've created their own version of political correctness by saying teachers can't expose students to things that really happened, like racism and prejudice and beatings and lynchings. They think that by not mentioning it, they can wipe it out of existence. Boy, are they in for a surprise. But that's not the worst of it. 
The worst of it is the way they're handling the COVID crisis. They think they can ignore the pandemic and make it disappear the same way they think they can write history out of existence. Just look at the way this disease has surged every time they thought they had it under control. What makes politicians believe they can just wish it away, that they don't need to make full use of the tools we have, including masking and vaccines? These same tools have been around for more than 100 years. Instead, we have leaders who go around saying school boards or even hospitals shouldn't require employees to wear masks or get vaccinations because it violates individual freedoms. What happened to the civics lesson you and I learned in grade school, the one that says your right to swing your fist ends at my nose? Why do state lawmakers think they are smarter or more in tune with local situations than local school boards and city councils? Why do they make local officials violate the law just to keep people safe? It's all so stupid, and like Warren Buffett said, the tide of ignorance is going out. It's time for Iowa's lawmakers to pull up their big boy and big girl pants and start doing things that make sense, Casey said as he walked away. And Drew McClellan's marketing column do you serve these consumers? In last week's column, we talked about WGSN's Future Consumer 2023 study and the trends that the study revealed. The same study also identified four distinct consumer groups that deserve our attention, each with different desires, motivations, fears, and expectations of the brands in their lives. The first of the four consumer groups is the predictors. Above all else, these consumers want stability, security, comfort, and normality. They are looking for a nice, steady experience without a lot of peaks and valleys. They want to be put at ease and want their lives to be simple and appreciate products and services that help them keep everything on an even keel. Interestingly, they've embraced a recessionary mindset, even if their personal finances have not been affected. To make a considered purchase, it needs to feel easy, affordable, and incredibly convenient. Anything unexpected or that causes a ripple in their world is unwelcome. They want minimal interference or disruption in their lives. They also don't appreciate an overabundance of marketing messages. And this group, craving certainty and security but low on attention, is a great match for auto refill and subscription services, which provide security and eliminate choice fatigue, while at the same time offering brands a source of data and a commitment to future purchases. The next group has been labeled the New Romantics. They are people rethinking their whole work-life balance and making big changes to their lives. We are all seeing these people in the workplace leaving good jobs to go back to school or stay home with the kids. Determined that their life after the pandemic will be different from how it was before or during the crisis, they're moving out of cities, ditching their commute, and honoring new priorities built around the importance of family and service. Their focus is on health, sustainability, and equity. These are people who are taking control back and choosing to change their sliver of the world. 
Conductors, the third group, are multidimensional, multi-talented, and always multitasking. Like everyone, the pandemic was hard for them, but these people were able to channel their energy in multiple directions and pursue new opportunities. They're now looking to capitalize on what they've learned, seeking out new experiences and driving the passion economy in which people can make a living by doing what they love. Their workday will remain flexible with a focus on their output rather than their time at their desk. Finally, the impossibles are the fourth emerging consumer group WGSN has identified. These people are angry at what they see as a lack of governmental and institutional assistance in 2020. They are committed to using technology and their community of like-minded people to create a future in which anything is possible. They expect businesses to stand for something, are tech-savvy and socially driven, and want to challenge the status quo. They feel the onus is on them to build back better, and it's in their power to do better for communities around them. The study also predicted that the next two years will require all businesses to think about a quartet of underlying factors that will reshape the customer landscape no matter which of these consumer groups they're dealing with. Predictability, making people's lives easier and helping them feel safe and secure. Diversification, prioritizing what's important to people and developing products and services to, that meet those new needs. Shopper entertainment, using new platforms and experiences to make commerce more exciting. The metaverse, a collective shared space that will change the way people live and work in the future. This new era is one of opportunity for us as business owners and leaders. We can help shape not only the future of our businesses, but of our communities. From the business record calendar, the week ahead, on Tuesday, August 17th, Public Policy Issue Forum on Affordable Housing hosted by the Greater Des Moines Partnership, Capital Crossroads, and the Young Professionals Connection. The Public Policy Issue Forum on Affordable Housing will feature a panel discussion on the importance of housing for the recruitment and retention of talent and its necessity for economic growth in the Greater DSM region. This is a virtual event from noon to one on Tuesday, August 17th. And on Thursday, August 19th, Made in Iowa, Iowa Manufacturing Forecast, hosted by the Business Record. What's the outlook for Iowa's manufacturers as the economy recovers from the global pandemic and what new challenges lie ahead? The Business Record panel discussion of industry leaders and economists will examine the latest trends and provide their forecast for the state of Iowa's manufacturing industry, a virtual event from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, August 13th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.